0: Alright, good morning. My name is Daniel Bird, I am not that, although our tattoos are very similar. Yep. <laughs> yeah, this week we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, in fact this week and next week. And we're going to, rather than looking at it in an expository sort of way, we're going to be using it as kind of a jumping off point for a couple of topics that I find particularly interesting. And this week... Our topic is free will. Oh. So, we'll be taking a run at it from three primary angles. First, we'll talk about the wording of Scripture itself. We'll talk about some typology that I feel supports it. What's in it? I said this ought to be good. <laughs> I, know, I know, yeah. If, if I could have everybody who is Calvinist shift to this side and everybody. That way we can have a fight at the end. So, second, typological. Uh, interpretation of scripture and then third I want to look at some of the implications I feel the character of God implies for this topic so we're going to read the whole chapter some of the stuff we'll deal with more next week and plenty of it we're not going to cover at all but if there's one thing that happens today that has value it will be reading scripture so let's get to it Genesis 3 starting when we us prayers huh Let's not forget to pray before we just dive in. Okay. Let him preach. I was going to pray after, but we yeah. can pray before. No, yeah. Let <laughs> He no, I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. But free will. It's, it's your, your chance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All right. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves mourning coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called out to him and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, he gave me from the tree, and I ate." Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I did it. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put you between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying, You shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground; and toil you will eat it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden, of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gift to us that we can understand more about who you are, Please be with us as we seek to learn from it. Help us to approach it with humility. Help us to be willing to go where it leads rather than trying to make it go where we want it to lead. Please help us to have joy in studying who you are and please help it to affect our lives each day. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Spoiler alert, I do believe that God has created humanity with free will. So, I'm going to be kind of running at it from that direction. In fact, this morning, I'm not really going to be going through and trying to refute specific passages that are sometimes used to support the idea that there isn't free will. Uh, I'm going to be more presenting what I see as positive evidence. And my reasons for this are two. One, I don't have a thorough understanding of every single verse that's used to support the view that is opposite mine. And two, my intention isn't here to like bring down some final word on a debate that's raged for millennia. My hope is to kind of throw some new ideas, maybe new for some, maybe review for others, but to put some ideas out there continue a conversation that I've had with some of the folks in this church and get feedback and grow in my own understanding and be challenged by those who disagree. So, that's what we're going to do. Also, just as a disclaimer as well before we start, I recognize that there is kind of a spectrum of views on free will with some on the far, far, I don't know which direction, I don't want to say a direction to hurt anybody's feelings, but on one far side or the other, that says, not only is there no free will, but God also predestines individuals to the lake of fire, double predestination. And then there are those who say, there is free will to some extent, but not in regards to salvation. You can't choose to be saved, but you can't choose other things. Now, from my perspective, I see any kind of limitation of free will in regards to salvation as kind of the extreme hallway. Because if you take that fundamental choice away, if you make that something that we don't have any ability to choose or reject, then all the other choices in our life I see as fairly irrelevant if that one foundational choice isn't a choice at all. So I kind of feel like they have the same logical end if you face it out eventually. Um, so I'll kind of be discussing it in a black and white not going into all the nuance of it, so uh, don't uh, don't be too upset, or or go ahead and be upset. With me. That's okay, also. Here's all right. That. Yes. Enough of go for while. what's that? Because you have to go. Yeah, yeah. No, the people who are predestined to be angry with me. Get <laughs> so <I'll tell> <laughs> yeah. Stop looking okay. at me. Everybody, look at me, again? Brett, Brent, could you uh, just zoom a camera right in on me? <laughs> Alright. So, the language of Scripture, I think, is important. Anybody else think the language of Scripture is important? And I'm not talking necessarily about like the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. I'm talking about the wording used. I think that if God inspired these words, then we should expect them to be Perfectly precise in the original autographs, the original inspired text of Scripture. I also believe that though we don't have flawless translations, we have their issue. Even I don't know if you've got any KJV folks in here, but even the King James version, it's got some issues. All of our modern translations have issues here and there. However, we have an incredible amount. Of manuscript evidence, we have incredible, uh, you know, translations throughout the centuries, through different places that we can use to have a very strong and reasonable um, conviction that what we have here in God's Word, in the translations we have, is reliable. In the places where there are some disagreements, we can use the text of Scripture itself to cross-reference and search what is going on what is the more accurate translation, what's the more accurate wording, because the rest of Scripture will support one context or the other. It's not to say there aren't some disagreements, but in general, with anything foundational, we have extremely solid evidence for the the words that we read here now in the 21st century. So, we're going to take a look at some of these words, and I'm going to ask some folks uh, if you would be willing to volunteer to read some passages, um, we'll have you come up to this. It's going to be kind of a rapid fire sort of thing. We'll do a little reading, a couple verses, and then we'll switch back and talk about it for a little bit. So we'll just kind of cycle through. Uh, so can I get some volunteers? One, two, three, four, five, six. It's a lot. I know. Are there six people willing here? Okay. Gabby. Yeah. Would you get Joshua 24:14 through 15? Mr. Rob, would you take 2 Samuel 24:12 through 14? Happy, would you take Esther 4:14? Yes. Dasha, Psalm 25:12. Who else raised their hands? Is That a hand? You have a hand up though. Excuse Excuse. <laughs> okay. All right, Isabel. Can you read Proverbs 129 and the last one? Anyone? Going once, going twice, James. Isaiah 56, 4. Everybody? 2 Samuel, uh, Samuel 24, 12 through 14. When I sent Matt the slides yesterday, I accidentally sent Second Samuel 12 through 14 without the chapter reference. And he called me at like 10. He's like, are you really Wow going through three chapters in 2 Samuel. It's like, yeah, yeah. We've got to keep up with like, you know, the two, two and a half hour mark. That do. So, but it's just two verses. And also, if Matt asks, because this isn't going to be as long as a math sermon, but tell and I went for several hours. I don't want to get chewed out when he comes back. All right. Um, before we get into those, I will go through a couple in Genesis, since I'm already turned there, and that's easy. You guys do the hard work. And then we'll get to yours, Gaby. And then uh, I'll call out as we read those other passages. Alright, so we're going to go back a chapter from where we first read to Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Looking at the wording again. This is God commanding them about the trees of the garden. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, from my perspective, commandments to people, if free will is taken out of the equation, are irrelevant. And again, some people would say, well, Adam had free will pre-fall. But then once he sinned, he no longer had free will. Um, But any commandment. If you take away free will, and again, I think you take away free will after the fall, then you're still kind of back in that same ditch, is pointless. It can't even be spun as some sort of deception, because even that would be pointless without free will. You can't deceive a being that doesn't have free will. Back into Genesis 3.6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and ate. All of this is describing an internal process to the woman. She saw, she desired, she took, she ate. The servant deceived her, but he did not control her. Again, deceit wouldn't be possible. If you have no free will, think about it. And God didn't make her do it, unless this passage is leading us astray. God did not predestine her to do this, I don't believe. That is, in fact, part of Satan's lie to her, that God is the author of sin and she has no free will. We'll talk about that more later on. Then, in the next chapter, Genesis 4 6 and 7 we've got the story of Cain and Abel and God coming and talking to Cain. He says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Oh, sorry. I started in the sentence. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance falling? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. If statements... If there is no free will, have no purpose. If Cain has no free will, then saying, if you do this, if you do that, that is irrelevant completely, has no purpose whatsoever, and God wouldn't do it if he is who says he is, I believe. Okay, now, Joshua 24, 14 and 15. And you can, yeah, that one should be... Good Brown. Enough. Brown. 14, 15 minutes. Yes, please. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Thank you. So, Joshua says what? Choose who you will serve. Choose who you will serve. And that is in a negative sense. He says if you don't want to serve the Lord, choose who you will serve. However, not wanting to serve the Lord, him choosing to serve the Lord, I feel like the presence of the command, all of this is choice sort of language. 2 Samuel 24, 12 and 14. We'll. Oh, who's Second Samuel? Is that me, Rob? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'll call you guys up sooner or next time. Maybe Esther four fourteen. You can get ready. Second Samuel twenty four twelve through fourteen. Go and speak to David. Thus says the Lord. Quote. I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him. Shall seven years' famine come to you in your land, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent. End quote. Did I write have in 15 as well? Would you read 15 as well? Then David said to oh. Gad, I am in great distress let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. Thank you, Rob. So, if you're not familiar with the context of this passage, David had called for a census to be taken. There were specific tasks that had to be done before a census was taken according to God's law in Exodus. David didn't take up he just called the census and that was an incredible sin. We often look at David and Bathsheba, David taking another man's wife as his great sin. This is another tremendous sin. Tons of people in Israel died. But we see David exercising a choice to trust God. Now you might say, well, David chose to sin, taking the census, and that is true. And then when he's confronted by Gad, the prophet, he's given three options. Pestilence, famine, is it? and enemies, I think. Anyway, he chooses to fall on the mercy of God. He chooses the three days' pestilence rather than falling into the hands of his enemies or the other one. Oh, there it is. Ben, uh, family. what What's family? Lee. Oh, fleeing. Okay. But anyway, he chooses, he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, more or less. I don't remember it exactly. But let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great. He chooses... So trust in God's mercy in the midst of this great sin that ultimately causes many to die. Esther 4.14, please. And Psalm 25.12, you can get ready whenever you are ready. This is a message that Mordecai sends to Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Thank you, Happy. So, like with Cain, when God is speaking to Cain, Mordecai says to Esther, if, and the Holy Spirit inspired the author to record these words, he says, if you don't use your position of royalty, God will save the Jews another way. So, if. There is no free will. There wouldn't be a possibility of Esther not saving the Jews in the way that God saw it originally. But Mordecai says, if you don't, God will raise somebody up from somewhere else. She's faced with a choice of obedience and rebellion, And we remember her now because she chose obedience. Psalm 25, 12. Proverbs 1, 29. you get it, 29 and 30 to be ready and waiting too. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will, will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Thank you. So words like instruct, words like should especially, should choose, I feel like are really important. Because if there's a should, God will instruct him in the way he should choose. There's the implied he might not. But God says, I will instruct him in the way he should choose. Again, doesn't have any meaning in a context without some kind of free will. Proverbs 1, 29 30. <laughs> because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. Okay. If there's no free will, no one chooses the fear of the Lord. No one chooses the fear of the Lord. They are chosen for it. So this, again, wouldn't make sense. You couldn't accept his counsel. You would be forced into his counsel. There's no choice. There's no accepting. Not possible without a will to choose and accept. And last, from Isaiah fifty-six, four and five. Your See. For this is what the Lord says to you, came my servants who choose that pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them, I'll give my temple, dance walls a memorial, and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And I also want to kind of go back to the second verse up here that says, Blessed are those who do, who do these. The person who holds fast to it can keeps the Sabbath without desecrating or keeping it sacred and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Thank you, James. So it looks to me, Like there's some eunuchs who choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. And I don't know about you folks, but I am going to go ahead and try to expand the horizons here to beyond just eunuchs having free will, because otherwise I think that would start to get into some kind of really short-lived cult. (laughs) But we can go on and on and on like this. I would, in fact, challenge anyone to find a page of the Bible, any single page in their Bible, that doesn't have some sort of language, whether it's really overt or more subtle, that doesn't make sense if the readers don't have free will, if we don't have a choice. If we really don't have it, if we are doing only what we were predestined to do, then I feel like all this language throughout the Bible is at best a mistake which isn't a great option, or at worst, an attempt at deception. Obviously, I don't think this is the case. I mean, the language used in Scripture over and over and over drives home, even if it's not explicitly stating man has free will and, you know, in a bullet point sort of list, it's explicitly stated by the language used that we have a choice in our salvation. And that is the case. Okay. Evidence from typology. This is kind of one of my pet hot ones, I guess, in scripture, is typology. I really enjoy it. So this is, if this gets off under the weeds and you guys are like, what kind of Christian conspiracy theorist is this, I'll understand. But a really persistent frustration of mine, and one of the reasons, actually, that I really appreciate this church is when God's word is treated as kind of like a simple self-help, do this, don't do that, and everything's just going to work out, and, and it's all about us. Maybe a few quotable lines for your calendar, I don't know, but it's simplistic. It's, it's really, again, just a, a self-help book that's straightforward. The truth is, though, I think, every passage of Scripture, no matter how obvious it may seem, is an absolutely inexhaustible mine of truth and a revelation of who God is. And it's interconnected with the rest of God's word. Every doctrine in the Bible has layers of depth. Some are near the surface we can grasp without too much difficulty, but some are buried and we have to dig far and deep and wide and we'll never in a lifetime uncover the totality of it. And I don't think that this should come as a surprise to us, because that's how God does everything. We look at creation, our bodies, everything from the universe down um, down to the tiniest subatomic particle is interconnected, complex, far beyond anything we can ever imagine or understand. And that's because it's a reflection of who God is. It's a reflection of the infinite, the finite we see around us, God's word is a reflection of himself, and so we should expect it to be stunningly complex. However, in spite of all of this, how many of us have been to a church where someone gets up and preaches some well-known story, and they draw out a couple of truisms and some tired application that's been beaten into you since Sunday school and send you home like that was, you know, what you should be expecting from any passage from God's word? I know I certainly have. And, uh, and my favorite example of this, I've used it before, so apologies to the handful of you who this will be a rerun for. But my favorite example is the story of David and Goliath. Because I've heard a lot of sermons on David and Goliath. Everybody loves it. Everybody loves the story. Everybody wants to hear about the shepherd boy defeating the giant. It's exciting. It's great. But does anyone else feel like they've heard like 15 sermons about how you can defeat your personal Goliath? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I feel like I've heard, every time I've heard this preach, it's about how you can defeat your personal giant. So what's your giant? Max, is it foot odor? And yes. You can defeat your giant. How about you? Is foot your foot, foot, foot. Oh, foot odor? Well... Load up the marshmallow of solid biblical interpretation and sling that at the giant and kill them. You can defeat them. I feel like that is not entirely without merit, that God can work through us to defeat things that are larger than us, to overcome things that are larger than us. But when we only focus on this one shallow facet, we're doing disservice to the passage. And when we focus on this sort of shallow facet, we're making the Bible about us. What can I do? What can I do in my life? It's all about how everything applies to me. And I won't deny that there is application in the Bible, for sure. There's a lot of passages that you'll read. Like, oh my gosh, I'm not doing this. Or I am doing this. And I need to change. And that's important. But as important as those things are, I'm convinced that the primary purpose, the highest function of Scripture is to reveal the person, the nature, and the work of Jesus Christ. Amen. We see that in John 5, 39, 24, 27, and elsewhere. So I think that our main objective, our primary, first objective, whenever we approach a passage, whenever we open God's word, is to ask, what does this show me about who Jesus is? I call this an anti-application because it's not about me. It's about Jesus. And when we work from that point to application, I think we're starting from a much healthier uh, beginning and working through a much better process rather than looking first for what does this mean for me and then kind of reverse engineering back to something it might say about Christ. So, for a story like David and Goliath, I think a really important question we should be trying to answer and discover is, what does this teach me about Jesus? And the aspect that I really, really like, that I feel like brings a lot of the Old Testament to life, especially the weird stories, which we'll get to one later, is typology. Typology, for anyone who might not be familiar with it, is the study of Scripture in a metaphorical sense, not to take away from the literal David actually killed Goliath for the slain a stone. I don't want to deny that, or say that you know the stories in Scripture that are presented as history aren't true fact. But a layer of truth contained in them is how they're revealing Christ through the story in symbol and in type. So, for example, if we look at David, I think this is a pretty easy one. We've got a shepherd. He's going to be a king, and he. Defeats the enemies of Israel and saves them from slavery and destruction. That would be a type of Christ. Christ. Yeah. How about Goliath? This incredibly powerful, evil, unbeatable beast of a guy is leading an army to destroy Israel, but is killed before he can wipe them out, seemingly without effort, by the shepherd king. You want to have opinions on that one? Mm-hmm. State huh? <laughs> i mean probably you're like what 10 feet tall you probably can't even reach down there and wash that one's a little less straightforward i have some opinions but i think he represents someone in scripture and i think it's an important facet of this story and if we look further we get a really detailed description of his armor and his weapons When I look at things like that, I'm like, why is this included in the Bible? Why is it important for me to know? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire this you know, spear like a weaver's beam? How many shekels of armor, or shekels did his armor weigh? size of the shield, all this stuff. I think there's meaning behind there. I think it's not insignificant and if you look for patterns in Scripture, I think you can find things that connect. Why does David take Goliath's head to Jerusalem? What's that about? Does that have any meaning? How about the five smooth stones? Is there a reason that we're told that the stones are smooth, that he picked five? What's going on there? Is there anything behind that other than just flavor to add to the story? And how about Saul? When he asks, whose son is that? After he just talks to David, and David's like, okay, I'm going to go kill Goliath. And then he's going out there, and Saul's like, whose son is that? And Abner's like, I don't know. What's going on with that? Who doesn't know whose son is the one that delivers Israel? there are a lot of other questions to explore in that story. I think those are some of the obvious ones that suck out to me. But to cement the idea that the layers of complexity in Scripture include typology, we can look to Christ's words himself. In John 3, 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I just skipped a page. You mm-hmm. might be in trouble here. You back them? Huh? Did you them? I did number them. That's why I think there's a problem. <laughs> okay. okay. Bear with me. Yep. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Alright, sorry. Yeah. All the way. <laughs> You sound just like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> money. We might be winging it here. Freestyling. thing. yeah, <laughs> do it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'm just make sure because if it is out of order and I get to it elsewhere, I might like just seamlessly go into something that is no longer relevant for the for the sermon. So we'll <laughs> do one little check. Are you guys waiting with with, with bated breath? I'm sure. There's thirty. I'm trying to. I'm trying not to like, just have a 22 minute sermon like I used to do, because you know, Matt would make fun of We'll all make fun of you. All right. Well, then I'll just talk really slow. Okay. All right. Well, this is actually an opportunity opportunity for me to pad out the sermon because I am missing. Two? Two pages? Yes, two pages. So... I, I don't think so. The computer did it formally. I normally trust computers quite a bit with their numbering skills, more than I trust myself. It was pretty Yeah, maybe that was the heresy. It was a high Okay. So, John 3.14 says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or something, because I don't have the last couple of lines. You can look it up for yourself. But Christ is saying explicitly, this symbol in the Old Testament, when Moses lifted up the serpent and everybody had to look to it so they could be healed from the bites of the fiery serpents, that is a picture of me on the cross. It's not about some snake. It's not about temporary salvation from getting bitten by snakes. That was always about me. That was revealing what I would do to save Israel. Oh man, I wish I had these pages. Okay. okay. huh? I think I, I don't think I mailed it to myself. Yeah, we're just. okay oh yeah it would probably be worse if I tried to read it from my phone like this okay so that's one typological or support for typology in my view now some of the specific typological aspects that I think lead us towards free will come from Genesis 3 so Adam and the woman. They take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, enter sin, and are condemned. They are in sin, so I don't care what your fees are, on pre-fall Adam, pre-fall woman, they should presumably have no free will if that's how this all plays out. But there is more than one tree in the garden. Obviously, there's lots of trees, but there's more than one significant tree. They took an ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, chose to sin, but they did not take from the tree of life. We're not told if they took from the tree of life prior to the fall, but I don't think that would be really significant because they weren't in sin yet. It would have been significant, incredibly significant, had they taken and eaten of the tree of life Pref or post fall. To recognize this, I think we have to define the core of what the second death is. I was going to have somebody read Revelation 21 8, but I forgot to have anybody do it, so I'll do that. Huh? Oh, it's on the slide? I don't, know. I don't think it's as holy if you read it off a screen. Okay, <laughs> okay Revelation 21 8. Should be glad I didn't bring my scroll in here. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Mm. Now, it could come across with just a quick glance this the second death is primarily a location. The lake of fire. That's the second death. However, I don't believe the second death is a location. The second death is a state of being. I think we can see this when we look at the inverse of the second death, which is eternal life. Eternal life is not the New Jerusalem. It's not a location. Eternal life is the state of living forever in relationship with Christ, in relationship with God. The fact that there will be a location is reflective of us still being physical creatures in after the resurrection and occupying space and time and having a location. We're not going to be omnipresent or some sort of ephemeral things in the, in the eternal state. We will have the location. We will have bodies. We will live in the New Jerusalem. And it's important. But the point isn't the location. Eternal life would still be eternal life if it wasn't in the New Jerusalem. It would be that eternal relationship with God. So if we go back to the second death, while the location is significant and it reveals an aspect of the state itself, the second death is fundamentally the state of living forever physically in separation from God. That's the central issue of what the second death is. So if we look back to Adam and the woman in the garden, they took an from the tree of life. So, tree of knowledge of good and evil. That Caused the fall, they chose sin, they chose rebellion, and they were punished for it. They were separated from God. But they had a second choice to make after choosing to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they had, in their sinful condition, in their separation from God, gone to the tree of life, which I remember they had time to do, they made fig leaves and everything. Some would argue that there were days or weeks or even months between the time of taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the time that God came and walked in the garden. But regardless, I don't think it's a matter of them not being able to get there. They chose not to eat from the tree of life. Which would have daily with God. Huh? It says let's see here. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. No, I mean, like, before, isn't there something before the, then they walked with the Lord in the garden? No? Okay, Okay. maybe. Somebody Google it. Um, And and then just pipe up. I would actually be interested in knowing as well. Um, If if that's the case, then I'll go yell at the pastor who I heard this from. Plagiarized (laughs) Okay, so they did go and take from the tree of life after they were in death in, in physical death and that's significant because if they had taken from the tree of life in a state of separation from God They would have lived forever physically in separation from God and that's I think why we see such an emphasis at the end of Genesis 3 God says the man's become like us knowing good and evil We've got to drive them out of the garden, otherwise, he will take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's not God being anyway. like, Well, I just don't want these people, you know, hanging out and having a good time for too long. He is concerned with their salvation. He is concerned because they are saved. We'll get to that one next week and are saved. God drives them out to keep them from the tree of life. That would have been the second death. That was the second choice. And did they make that choice while they were in sin? If we have no free will and we are destined to fall and we are, you know, have no ability to choose to trust God in our fallen state, then I would argue that they would have gone, inevitably, and taken from that tree. Okay, and as far as the typological implications of this, Adam and Eve, there's a lot going on there. But they are representative to a degree of us as well, of all of humanity. So Adam and the woman choose to fall into sin. We choose sin, whether got, or whatever your perspective is on original sin or not. We, undoubtedly, ourselves, choose sin. But then we have a second choice to make. Are we going to choose the second death, living physically forever, after the resurrection of the lost, in the lake of fire. We have those same choices, even if they're not as tangible or tasty as Adam and Eve had them. Another way I think that typological interpretations can lend support to the concept of free will is in the miracles, particularly in the miracles that Jesus performed in the Gospels. Now, I think there can be a tendency to look at miracles as almost like kind of divine magic tricks, just to be like, oh, look what I did, isn't that great, isn't that exciting, uh, you know, now read your body more, or something like that. But they do, to some extent, prove authority. the Lord, they do serve that purpose to a degree, but I think their primary purpose, again, is to reveal the person, the nature, the work of Christ. So in that case, we should expect every miracle, even the ones that seem repetitive, to be displaying something profound about them. I think the clearest ones that demonstrate free will to me are the miracles of healing. Again, particularly in the Gospels. Before though, we look at any of those particular events, let's look at the overall. When is healed miraculously, what is the purpose of that healing? Is it just physical? Physical health, physical um, comfort? To bring glory to God? Yes. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, I think obviously it's it's testimonial. Testimonial? Yes. Sure. But I think ultimately, the core of it is a revelation of Christ as the healer of our non-physical problems, which is sin. Christ is the healer of our souls. It's the savior of our souls. So when he... Bring someone back to life and heal somebody from an infirmity, it isn't like, oh great, now I'm just gonna, you know, live another 50 years and die. That's not the point of it. He's revealing who He is, what He will do for us eternally rather than just physically. Because physical health is just the slowest state of dying that we can have. And those who are saved and experience physical problems, you know, terrible diseases, terrible injuries, those sorts of things. That's not, we we know this isn't the case, but sometimes I feel like we can get trapped into some of these lies. But that's not a curse or something that God brings. That is an opportunity to use their life, as uncomfortable as it may be, for God's glory. Sometimes God heals, sometimes he doesn't, physically. Eventually, all will be healed physically, for those who believe But in the hearts of the people that have these terrible afflictions, God is working in a tremendous way and he's working in the people around them as well. Paul calls what we experience in this life light momentary affliction, and that includes the physical suffering of believers. God's primary purpose for his people in this life is not physical health, despite some incredibly popular heretics and what they teach. Our comfort in this life is not the priority. So the central issue in this is the typological portrait, I believe, of Christ's healing of our sin. God added humanity, came and died to provide healing for us. So when we see someone healed in scripture, that's a picture of Christ's work to save us from sin eternally. And where this intersects with free will, in my view, is how these miracles occur. Now, if we look at some of the miracles, like with Lazarus or some of the other people he raised from the dead, Christ initiates the encounter. They have no say in the matter. And so, if we only looked at those, we could say, well, yeah, salvation, physical healing, the picture of salvation, is something that is initiated by God and there's no choice on the part of humanity. However, right. If we look at some of the other miracles, I think we see a different picture. Mark 1 40 through 41. We'll take a look at one. This is a leper that Christ heals. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Move with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touching him and said to him, or and touched him and said to him, I am willing be cleansed. This man heard about Christ, sought him out, pursued him, and begged him to heal him. Christ, while obviously being eternal God, has a role in this that's more profound than maybe we can see from a from a superficial reading, but I think the reading of this text points to a choice this man committed. He could have chosen not to go to Christ. There are probably many who did not. Leprosy is one of the primary biblical types of sin. Throughout the Old Testament, the uncleanness of leprosy is a picture, a type, a, a representation of sin. And so Christ healing that is again. Demonstrating salvation. Then we look at the healing of Jairus's. Jairus? 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 Okay. Thank you. I I struggle with the biblical names sometimes, especially the old ones. (laughs) You're (laughs) not (laughs) the ones. Just kind of. (laughs) Okay. So Jairus's daughter and the woman with the hemorrhage. These two that are very much combined and interwoven. We have Christ going to raise a dead girl. Can she seek him? Is she seeking Christ? Can she ask for healing? No. No. So Christ is demonstrating his power, his choice, his choosing to save this girl. But while he's on the way there, he's going through the crowd and a woman follows him. She's been desperate to be healed for 12 years. You've probably all heard it. She's unclean. Not only is this a health problem, but this is also a social problem. She's an outcast from her community. She can't be a part of temple worship because she's unclean. It's a big deal. And she spent all of her money to be healed. She hears about Christ. She pursues him through the crowd and touches his garment and is healed. Now, did Christ know this was going to happen before him? Yes. Christ is infinite, omniscient God. He knew before the creation of the world what was going to happen here. But he chose to let this unfold in a way that represented the choice of this woman. He chose to let this unfold where he's going through the crowd, she follows him, and he even asked, Who touched my garment? Does he know who touched his garment? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he knows. God never asks anything for his own information. And I think that these actions of Christ, the actions of this woman, we're inspired by the Holy Spirit to be included in Scripture to reveal that yes, God is in complete authority. He goes to Jairus' daughter and he raises her. Nothing she can do. But simultaneously, a woman in, dramatically interconnected with Jairus' daughter, based on some of the other typology, she seeks him out. So both are true. God chooses and he requires inherent to choose. Now, I told you it's gonna get weird. Before we go on from the typological evidence, we we'll hit one more miracle, this time from the Old Testament. It's a fun one. See what you think. If you throw chairs, I'll I'll uh, stop because I know it's a heresy. Okay. Second Kings six, one through seven. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now the place where we, you are the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please, let us go to the Jordan, and each of us take from there a beam, and let us make a place there for ourselves, where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. How many of you have read passages like this in the Bible, or maybe even this passage, and thought, what the heck is going on here? Why is this included? I have many times. And I actually think that's a really valuable question when approaching scripture. As Why was this included in God's word? Why did God see fit toward even this specific story about a guy who's in the maxedad, Elisha they can't float. Why was it put into scripture? Is it just, again, flavor? Something to spice things up between the siege of Samaria where the women are eating their babies and the Naaman's leprosy getting transferred up to Gehazi. It's not... Interesting enough for us maybe? I don't think that's the case. I think, again, every part of scripture is revelatory of Christ. And so the question then becomes, how does this passage reveal Christ? Let's look at some of the details and we'll see if we can find some answers. Let's talk about Elisha first. This is a prophet who raises the dead, second Kings 4, heals leprosy, 2 Kings 5, and has knowledge of events. Prior to them occurring, 2 Kings 6 and 7, the king of, um, king of Syria, I think, is plotting all these ways to destroy Elisha, but Elisha knows about them ahead of time. The king of Israel, during the siege of Samaria, plans to go kill Elisha. Elisha knows all about it. He has this sense of omniscience. Obviously, he's not omniscient, but God is revealing things to him that he shouldn't be able to know otherwise. So who can he be represented, typologically? Jesus, yeah, the Sunday school answer. There we go. So Elisha is a scriptural type of Christ, and he goes for the Jordan with these sons of the prophets to cut wood. How about the Jordan? What does that represent typologically? It's Hmm? Death. I think it's death. Often in scripture, bodies of water are representative of death or judgment. And the Jordan, I think, is one of the primary... Ones that represents that, because before Israel can enter into the promised land, this type of heaven, this foreshadowing of heaven, they have to cross through the Jordan, and they leave twelve stones in the midst of it. That is typological of baptism, which is typological of death and resurrection. Yeah, and there's a lot more going into the Jordan. That's the abridged version, but. Along with those sorts of things and other passages, I think we can look at the Jordan as a type of death. So, Elisha represents Christ; the Jordan represents death, judgment. How about the accident, the stick? What are those about? What's so important here that the Almighty God made sure was included and predestined me to lead it to you today? But <laughs> the accident—it's something borrowed, something that a person can lose into death and judgment. Something very valuable. An I say, at that time, isn't something that, you know, anybody would just have lying around like we do in our sheds and whatnot. He's not able to retrieve it under his own effort. What could this represent? Ezekiel 18. Well, yeah, Ezekiel 18.4, Ecclesiastes 12.7, our soul. How about the stick? What goes into death and judgment recovers what is lost, saves from death and judgment and something else that we might call a stick that's a name for someone throughout scripture and a branch somebody's called the branch over and over in the prophets also so, rod and staff too huh also also twenty-eight with the rod and staff yeah exactly so I think, and bear with me. It's okay if we don't all agree on this. I think typology can have some interesting nuances. And and before we go on, the important part I think isn't necessarily being like, this is what I think, and this is what I'm going to die on about this specific typology. What I think is the critical part, because I can be off on all of this stuff, and it's your guys' responsibility to come and hash it out and tell me how wrong I am. I would appreciate that. Not even joking there, but I think the real mistake is to say ah Things like typology, they just get too subjective too funky too down in the weed so we won't deal with them We will just you know ignore them and look at you know, okay, all that we can learn from this is God wants you to keep your axe head. He's really worried about your, your hand tools. I Don't think that's the case Again, Jesus specifically, explicitly lays out that that snake, on, the bronze serpent on the pole was a type of him. In Romans, Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ, he's a foreshadowing of Christ. So it's, it's it laid out clearly in Scripture. And I think I'm certainly wrong on certain points. In, I just don't know which ones they are yet. Uh, God is revealing those to me. It's not the most funny, but it's good. Um, it's and, and so I think we should be working to try to put the puzzle pieces together. Does this fit? Talk to somebody about it. Does this seem to make sense? Does this fit with who God is in the rest of scripture? Does this interconnect with other scriptures in a way that teaches us more about who he is? In that case I think that's not necessarily like proof positive that you've got, you're on the right track with that specific typology but it can be a step in the right direction, an accumulation of evidence So, to kind of Roll everything into one on this story of Elisha and the said. I believe Elisha is a type of Christ who throws a type of Christ, the stick, the branch, into the water of the Jordan. And we should expect that, because who takes Christ's life from him? Who kills Christ? He gives it up himself. He gives it up himself. John 10, 18, no one takes his life from him. People who are like, oh, the Romans killed Christ. Incorrect. People who, you know, blame the Jews. Incorrect. He came specifically to lay down his life. And when you are perfect humanity and God, no one can kill you with some nails and a piece of wood. It's not a thing. So he lays his own life down. Elisha casts the branch into the Jordan and floats this precious, Irreplaceable by this son of a prophet who's, you know, living in this commune of sons of the prophets. It's I don't know all, all the details about it, but it's, it's a kind of an interesting sort of sort of arrangement. But he's not able to go into the Jordan and get it himself. And Elisha floats it to the surface. And then what does the type of Christ tell the man to do? Yeah, don't eat it. Take it up for yourself. So, Christ goes into death judgment, recovers the lost souls. Not something we could never do on our own. But he tells us, I believe, take it up. And that's not a work. That's not like a, oh, well, I took up the axe head. That's accepting the free gift that God is offering. Yeah. So I think again, that's another hypological demonstration of the concept of free will. Okay, to round things off, what time are we at? Eleven fifty-seven. Oh my gosh! We well, have to lie to Matt. <clears throat> <laughs> All right, let's look at a quick piece of evidence from God's character and what I believe are kind of the natural conclusions that flow from it. has to do. I think it's important also to remember that whenever we're seeking to understand Scripture, it's imperative to look for the highest view of God, the highest view of Christ that we can. If there are interpretations that diminish Him in any way, His goodness, His power, anything like that, then we can just dismiss those out of hand. I really good example of this that I've also used before, um, where it's not done, frankly, is Christ and the Syrophoenician woman. Anybody heard this one? So, Christ is in northern Israel or uh, southern Lebanon. I can't remember which, but in kind of near the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Syrophoenician woman, not an Israelite, comes to him, begging him to cast a demon out of her dock. And Jesus says, uh, no, it's not good to give the bread of the children to the dogs. And people go, like, oh, look at Jesus. What a racist, misogynistic man he is. It's a good thing this woman was quick thinking and, you know, was able to give him a witty comeback and says, so like, all right, I guess I'll cast the demon out of your daughter. Fine. Is that the God that we serve? No. 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 Obviously not. That one should be a pretty easy one for us. But I think if we trace through any doctrine or position in Scripture, thoroughly enough, no matter how trivial the differences may seem, we can find those inconsistencies with the character of God, and any inconsistency means there's a flaw in it. Maybe not the whole thing is incorrect because we, you know, have a tangled web of our own finite minds. But if we find something that is inconsistent with the character of God, then we need to address that or reject the position because it cannot be true. If we have something that's incorrect. Ultimately, I think it will lead to an accusation that God is the full. I think there are plenty of combinations of God's attributes to get back to our topic. It could be used to come to the conclusion that humanity has free will, but the two that I want to use are his omnibenevolence and his omnipotence. His total, complete, infinite goodness and his total, complete, infinite power. God is good. Oh, that wasn't nice my turn. Sorry, <laughs> but that's okay. He's not the source or the author of evil. and that should be like kind of a no-brainer to us. However, the foundation of the lie of Satan is the opposite: that God is the author of people. He is the source of people. That's the lie he used to deceive the woman. That's the lie he used to deceive almost all of humanity, and that including us. And that's the lie he deceived, used to deceive a third being angelic host. The foundation of it is that God is the author of people. He calls into questions God, question God's goodness, he says, be very long die. for God knows that in the day of you your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. If you choose sin, if you choose rebellion against God, that will actually make you more like God, because He is the source of sin. He is the source of people himself. And you won't die. You won't face judgment because he isn't a perfect judge. He's not fit to judge you. And throughout the Bible, that accusation is repeated in different forms over and over. The Israelites say, you brought us out of Egypt into the wilderness to kill us, our children, and our livestock with famine. They said, you didn't save us. You brought us out of that great place where we're living it up to kill us. The Pharisees accuse him of blasphemy and deserving being deserving of execution rather than the Savior. They accuse him of being a liar and trying to mislead the people of Israel. And it's something that we can struggle with in our own lives. Maybe not as dramatic as the Israelites but I know I certainly have the times of the greatest trials and pain of my life. I would love to say and i steadfast, stalwart and trusted God and leaned on him for his peace, but in reality, I was a private, angry with God and telling him what a jerk he was. And believed, not like intellectually, like that I could prove it in the Bible, but in my heart that he intended evil from me, not good. Fortunately for me and Israel and everybody else, he is pure good, willing to forgive my lack of faith. One of the things that goes along with his omnibenevolence, his total complete goodness, is that he desires that no one should be condemned, no one should perish. We see that in 1 Timothy 2 4 and 2 Peter 3 9, which let's just read real quick if I can find it in a hurry. I can. I'm a trained professional. Well, that's not true. I'm a trained professional. 2 Peter 3 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When we combine this, his total, complete goodness, his desire that all be saved, with the fact that he's all-powerful, I think we can start to see an issue of How can we reconcile the truths, the facts, that God is good and does truly want all to be saved, and that He is omnipotent, and yet some are not saved. I know there are some churches that teach otherwise. I'd be surprised if anybody here is on that bus, but not all are saved. Sorry to death. Not all are saved. God wants all to be saved. He's omnipotent. What's going on? I don't care what kind of mental gymnastics you can do. I don't think you can have those two simultaneously if you also deny free will. Either he really doesn't want all to be saved, he causes some to not be saved, or at the very least, chooses to not choose them, or he really does want everybody to be saved, but he just can't pull it off. He really tried his best. even gave it a good old college tribe, but, you know, he don't win them all. Satan's a pretty smart fella. He doesn't have the ability. And that's not compatible with being sovereign and so that would undermine the free will position as well. Because so the the whole point? And I really admire. I want to you know. I just step back for a second. I admire the focus and the desire of people who tend towards the predestinational, Calvinistic sort of leaning. Their desire to emphasize the sovereignty of God. So I think that's important. And I think if you go too far in the other direction, I've known people. Who are, you know, the way, way, way one side with the other say rich finished, who say that God is not omniscient. He knows a lot of things, he's pretty smart. They say that he is inside of time, he's not outside of time. And he's just sure hoping that everything works out. That that kind of hand wringing, hope, hopeful God is doing his best. And that is blasphemy. So I appreciate the desire to elevate God's sovereignty. But if there is no true free will, I would argue that the entire history of God revealing Himself, all of humanity, going through this however long you believe it's been going on, is pointless and meaningless. Because he could have resolved it instantly if it was solely his choice. He could resolve it instantly, and it would make more sense because revealing himself to his people, to the angels, to everything in creation has no point if there's no choice of free will. There's no revelation without relationship. That's that's a good one. No revelation without relationship. You can put that on a um, Um. bumper sticker or a a brochure. What was the bulletin? Bulletin. You can fill it in. But I don't think that if you don't have free will, if you don't have choice, you don't really have true existence in the sense of being a thinking, conscious being. You have the same level of ultimately importance of existence as any inanimate object, I would argue. And so you don't reveal things to inanimate objects. It's not useful, it's not important, and it doesn't result in a relationship. And with my final thoughts, I am going to end someday, I just want to kind of preface it by clarifying that I don't mean to come across, and I hope I haven't come across as disrespectful or superior to those that I might disagree with on this topic. Because the truth is, for a lot of years, I was very much a convinced, five-point predestination Calvinist. I feel like that was something that was incorrect, but I also recognize that there are plenty of other things that are incorrect in my understanding of who God is in my understanding of Scripture. Um, Like I said earlier, I don't know which ones they are yet, so I can't fix them yet, but God works in us and changed us. And that, again, is what we gather as a body, part of what we gather as a body to do, to sharpen each other, to equip each other. So, as I have thrown out some of my ideas to hopefully sharpen and challenge you. I hope that those of you that disagree will challenge me and sharpen me. Because regardless of whether we agree on specific points, if we're all working towards the same goal, I think we can be useful to each other, have fellowship with one another, and have respectful and productive disagreement. Disagreements are some of my favorite conversations with other believers because it's you know it's great to have a, like everybody get in the circle yeah we all believe in this it's fun to an extent but it's not as engaging as having to really consider my position when someone who has a well thought out view of scripture challenges it yeah and yeah so so maybe I should have put this up at the top so people wouldn't get offended and walk out with all the back room. Uh, but I just, no. I just want. <laughs> it was new, It wasn't. The, uh, <laughs> I want to make sure that I communicate that this isn't meant to enlighten or gotcha or some kind of you know attack sort of thing. Because I know there are people with very, very well thought out opinions that disagree, and I would love to hear those. Anyway, after that disclaimer, from my perspective. The free will of humanity is represented throughout Scripture, both explicitly in the way the words are contained in the pages, and more subtly, typologically, in the understanding of who God is. Does that alter the truth, again, that God is fully sovereign? Does the free will of humanity alter that truth? I don't think it alters it from the slightest. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. All of the omnis. He is infinite. He's outside of time. But where I think we can run into issues is seeing the free will of his creations coming at the expense of his sovereignty. I don't think the free will of humanity or angels comes at the expense of his sovereignty. I think it a lot Because if... There was no free will. I think God would be like this kind of cosmic celestial only child playing with his Legos. Like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And then punishing some for doing what he told them to do, made them do. He doesn't have relationships. He's just playing pretend. It's not impressive in the slightest if his will is accomplished when he's playing all the parts. But on the other hand, if we conclude that he has made things with true existence, choice, will, all of that, then the fact that the absolute fact that His will is accomplished through and in spite of the free will of His creations, that's something incredible. That's something beyond our minds. Something that we can't put in a box and say that God is sovereign, man has no free will. Or man has free will, total free will, therefore God and is not sovereign. I think I of those is limiting God, trying to resolve the tension, and in the process, diminish God, even if that's not the goal. when we try to simplify Him, we fail to recognize the true glory of who God is and what has to. Okay, next week, as the prayer team comes up, uh, if you need prayer, um, you're welcome to come up and speak with some of the folks up here, they would be happy to pray for you. But next week we'll be back in Genesis 3, but we'll be shifting gears into eternal security instead of you know, instead of free will see what like Matt wasn't here to you know listen to the one that he agrees with but hopefully you'll be your next number two the one that he disagrees with yeah. <laughs> okay let's uh let's do our docs talk